Welcome to the Cabin Creatives podcast. Thank you so much for joining. This is the podcast where we interview all of the members of the Catholic Creatives movement and group. Welcome. Thank you. You are an awesome artist for all the people that are out there that don't know about your art. We've been buddies for a long time. I wanted to sort of just like from the outset say, your art is crazy. Like (laughs) in the Catholic world where most stuff is butterflies and Jesus holding a lamb, running across one of your pieces definitely makes you feel a little bit different. Can you tell the people out there who are not familiar with your art, like what you usually like to paint? Sure. First of all, like, I guess my favorite thing to do is to not make kitschy art. That's just, just awful. So when you talk about butterflies and little lammies running through meadows, kind of makes me cringe a little bit because art, especially deeply theological art, is meant to convey ideas and emotions and Catholicism is filled with lots of ideas and emotions and brutal things loving things glorious things but I love to paint in particular portraits that might lack form as we know it but it's not lacking human emotion so when you see a piece it's meant to draw up a feeling rather than be immediately recognizable as a lamb, a crucifix. So I'm questioning people through my art. I'm questioning their depth and I'm questioning the fact, have they dealt with mortality? So everything I do, I'm trying to question mortality. Have you come to grips with the fact that you're a hopeless sinner who's going to (laughs) die? Which is not a very comfortable thing for uh, people to feel. Like, I feel like your art is sort of like the death metal of Catholic media. <laughs> I mean, like, let's not mince words. You you paint dead people, like skeletons and really, really ugly stuff that's really brutal. What has been people's reception to that? How do people receive it when they see you put up a new piece that's like just really like horrifying? It's a good way to weed out superficial people in my life (laughs) i know i know that if like somebody has seen my art and they're still talking to me that means like that we're probably friends (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah yeah because because it is uncomfortable and some of it's very uh grotesque and uh i've i've received lots of different responses but Some people say, wow, you really made me think. And other people are like, wow, that's art. (laughs) And, you know, those are the people who usually tend to like beautiful imagery. You know, they'd like to look at a Monet or a a Rembrandt. Although some Rembrandts can be pretty dark as well. But, you know, maybe they they gravitate towards more of a resurrection Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So your your art is it's gripping because it's violent. And it makes me think about 
a very violent writer like Flannery O'Connor, who is very Catholic in her worldview and has been a champion of, of Catholic literature. But obviously, like when you first read a Flannery O'Connor, it's uh, I mean, it doesn't make you feel good. I think that she's trying to galvanize us. Right. And in a similar way, I feel like when I've seen your stuff, it's really galvanized me, really made me think about my own mortality. What made you decide to start painting that way and drawing that way? Well, first of all, like I never, never drew anything until late in college. And then I had to go through this process of actually learning how to draw. But in that process, I guess I just kind of was dealing with an existential crisis in my own life where my life was becoming increasingly chaotic and confusing and tumultuous. And so at first I was just expressing what I was feeling. And as I evolved as a person and kind of gained back a sense of who I was, I turned my painting on the public, on the viewers. So instead of reflecting my own emotions, I started almost looking for a rise. I wanted to challenge my viewers, just like you mentioned Flannery O'Connor does. Also, certain Jack London stories really do that, too. He's kind of my favorite author. <laughs> That's awesome. If you've ever read The Sea Wolf, it's like a Nietzschean manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, your painting, though, is, uh, certainly goes, it flies in the face of Nietzsche in that, like, it's deeply spiritual, right? Yeah, I think it's easy for definitely Christians, but even some Catholics to think that I'm being Nietzschean or to think that I'm being, like, anarchist, but... It's direct. It's not purely to get, it's not futurism. It's not to get your rise for the sake of pissing you off. It's to get your rise so that you think about who you are as a human being. Nietzsche didn't really care. He thought, you know, if you, if you could conquer your morality or whatever, you were the ultimate man. But I'm trying to say you need to face your morality acknowledge your flaws and i hope this painting makes you think about yourself it certainly made me think about myself over the past few years and so for those who don't know you it's interesting how that content the painting that you've done in your creative outlet has turned into a career very strange career path what are you doing now and how did your art get you there <laughs> my wife coined this term when your vocation leads to death or when, when you die to yourself, you lead to death. It's kind of like this thing we chuckle about in my family, but um, I'm a mortician. I'm an apprenticed mortician in Miami and me using my art to deal with my mortality over the last few years has led me to the vocation of dealing with death on a daily basis. And I feel like definitely my art is reflected in my daily work. My career choice is just, it's equally as horrifying to some people as my paintings. <laughs> uh, you have a lot of people just, what? What are you, what, I mean, what are you doing? That's, that's gross. It's not gross. That Christ was in a tomb. Somebody had to put him there. So it's been kind of an interesting couple of years here working towards that. So what exactly does that entail? I mean, what does a day-to-day -day embalmer slash mortician do? And why is that creative? And why is it meaningful to you? 
it's a life issue for me. It's really easy for people to shut their loved ones out of their life and their mind once they pass away. But a human body holds intrinsic dignity. Obviously, it was made in the image and likeness of God. And some things that embalmers do are, they come across as slightly barbaric, just in the restorative process. You know, you're, I don't know if everybody knows what embalming entails, but you're probably not. You're basically ripping open an artery and draining out blood and replacing it with formaldehyde. But I, I've noticed that my art comes out, that minimalistic art comes out when I'm restoring a body because I like to do as little as possible to it, keep it as simple as possible so that it looks natural. Um, that's kind of a big deal when families view at wakes. They, they don't want to see something that doesn't look like their loved one. So yeah. the grotesqueness of my art comes out in the embalming process because embalming is a grotesque thing, but the simplicity comes out when I'm restoring. I work in a high volume mortuary, so I'm dealing with several cases a day, just myself. There's several morticians at this facility. We, we see tons and tons of families and, and people every day. I definitely want to ask many more questions about that. But now that people have that kind of like, you're an artist that does work with the dead, I want to go back to, you know, growing up and just sort of like general faith questions and ask, you know, what was the genesis of your both experience as a child learning spirituality and how did you come to faith in your life? Sure. My childhood was... It can be described as a little bit monastic in the sense that my family life was very regimented and it was, I thought, beneficial looking back at it. Um, I was homeschooled for the first 10 years of my life. Me too. My, my, uh, my mom and dad's uh, motto in our schoolroom was Ora et Labora, which is the famous Benedictine motto of pray and work. That discipline was instilled in me, that Benedictine monasticism came out. I swam every morning, a swim team competitively, and then studied. And it wasn't until really college that my discipline kind of went wayward. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that uh, true for all of us, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it, it, was, it was easy to, to just stop regulating myself. I was at Ave Maria University with your brother. He could probably tell you plenty of crazy stories. That loss of discipline for me led me away from my faith for a while. I never abandoned Catholicism or anything. I just wasn't very, I wasn't a serious prayer. I wasn't a very serious, you know, it was, a, uh, it was obligatory. I just felt like I was in a desert. My life became increasingly chaotic until I ended up, you know, committed in a psychological ward down in New Orleans because I had just lost all control. And it was there that I was, was able to recommit myself to monastic discipline, went back to Colorado, and that's really when I really dedicated myself to my artwork. I really asked myself tough questions about who I was and why I was here. And now I'm a mortician. <laughs> <laughs> what did your art, like what role did your art play in, in your return to faith? 
when you're in the creative process and you're kind of following that vein of abstract expressionism, it's really easy to move in such a way that you kind of just let your emotions flow and, and you get kind of carried away. And it's like almost this mania that comes out and you're just like, you're just releasing all this stuff out of you. For me to be able to do that in a healthy way with artwork instead of whatever other way people do that is uh, it allowed me to start to evaluate. First, I evaluated my drawings and paintings and I said it was more objective. I was like, well, this is good art. This is bad art. But as I kind of honed my skill, I started to look at my own emotions that I was conveying and I... I started to really grapple. I started to really wrestle with what I was dealing with, like what I was feeling. And when I came to the realization that it was okay to feel those things and to express them, it was at that point that I, I didn't feel so far away from God anymore. What were you feeling I, that you were afraid to express? Just incredible despair and rage and, and just, I felt worthless really battling with this, you know, this idea of what am I really worth? I came from this train of thought that I needed to like contribute to society in such a deep way that if I wasn't able to do that, I was just a waste of space. And as I painted and expressed emotions and others started to see that, I felt like I was teaching people around me it was okay for them to express emotion too. Mm. And so I became almost like a pedagogue <laughs> in my art. And I kind of obsessed over it. It was all I talked about. I was painting like 15 pictures a day. I have like a stack of hundreds of paintings in my, my parents' basement in Colorado. I just don't know what to do with them. And that was when like the catharsis really started to happen. And I, I felt like... To use the Lenten term, I felt like I was walking out of the desert back into the church. And then really mortuary school and apprenticeship was just like a refined vocation. I just needed to find a place where I could do that all the time. And, you know, selling art for a living is it's very difficult. This was like a perfect fit. I go to work and I die a humble death every day by serving these dead people, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned Lent. That's literally why I wanted to interview you in this, because Lent is, is a season of looking at yourself and with violence, cutting off the parts of ourselves that are not fitting to God, like cutting off our sin and our weakness and our, our fears. And, I, and that can be a very, very scary thing. It's almost like... You know, it's one thing to just say, I'm going to give up something for Lent. It's another thing to really like use that and look at yourself and say, I'm so weak, I can't even give this up. Like to feel just the weakness of our own will and our own need for comfort and our fear of, you know, humiliation and all of those things of being left out because of what we're giving up. All of this to say that it's such a, a time for us to look at ourselves and look at our mortality and look at how our need for God and that's something that you're doing every day with your vocation. I wanted to hear more about like, how does that affect you being so close to death? How do you approach God and 
how is that a, a spiritual thing for you? Kind of at first, when I first started uh, a little over a year ago doing this, I would encounter someone who had passed away. And at first, my prayer was like, not shallow, but just, I guess my prayer was kind of kitschy, really. Um, I would see like uh, this person who had died and I would, I would just pray like, Lord, don't let me die this way. And as I saw more dead people, got more comfortable with it, I started to realize you can really tell who was at peace when they passed and who was like in just utter, just freak out chaos. I say, you know, that person died well or that person did not die well. I feel like you can pretty much tell based on their body language. And so my my prayer became more specific in the sense that I wasn't just trying to avoid a particularly painful looking death, but rather you take me however you want, but let me die well. Let me die humbly and ready to to face you in judgment. Mm-hmm. which is a lot different than, Lord, don't let me die that way. <laughs> when was the moment that you you remember thinking that? When was the first time you thought that? I guess it was, I had been called to a hospice unit to um, to pick up this, this old man who, by all accounts, he was just not a very nice person. You know, the nurses said he was just like the worst patient to deal with and he kept asking for stuff and when he died they had kind of left him alone for a while because he was so tough to deal with and he he had been propped up with all these pillows but by the time they had realized he had expired the rigor had kind of set in and he was stiff he was he was sitting up he was stuck that way and that was like the first time i had really seen a person who had not died well there was just a horrified look in his eyes on his face and it was right then i it erased any painful death i had encountered or witnessed from my mind i was just like that's all i would i need to avoid that (laughs) yeah i need to avoid that horror so if i die humbly and i'm i'm with christ not against him and and i think like asking our lady of mount carmel in particular for graces at death is powerful just because of her, her promises of her scapular. That's all I ask. I, it could be a car wreck or cancer or whatever it is. If I can have a dialogue with Christ as I die, then that's all I want. And to see that horrified man who was so far from God, that's when my prayer changed. Have you read The Death of Ivan Illich? I have. It's very important to my profession. <laughs> I always recommend it to my fellow morticians because there's superficial morticians out there too. <laughs> yeah, I believe that, although it sounds kind of strange to yeah, be superficial about that. In the book or the novella, it's, I mean, it's very similar. It's about a man who is a horror to everyone that he's with, to his family, to, to his friends, to his wife, and is deeply selfish and goes through the process of dying and becoming completely helpless. And until the last very kind of end, he's fighting it, right? Like, yeah, he's just, 
he's acting out in complete selfishness, anger, and regret and shame. And it's really horrifying, right? Like um, yeah. to be brought through the process of, of death that way and to, to see yourself in it, you know, like when I first read it, it broke my heart because I just saw in myself so many of those tendencies to like, to be angry and hurt other people out of my own pain. Yeah. And to not accept suffering, you know, like not to look at, at it as a gift to like resent it and to be, to be angry about it, honestly. And I feel like the, the release of anger and suffering is actually a very difficult thing to do, but it's part of like the freedom of the cross and the freedom that we as Christians or Catholics have. No, I totally agree with you. It's the dying to yourself every day, you know, in that act of humility, you achieve freedom. But, you know, some people don't do that every day. And so, it's, you know, it happens on their deathbed, hopefully. Either way, like humility and courage are probably like the two virtues that you need most on your deathbed. Courage to face your maker and humility to face your maker. <laughs> really, that's all you like that's that's the that's the only thing left yeah how how does that change the way that you live i mean you've talked about like how to die in your daily life when you're not literally dying how does that spirituality become adapted it has really simplified my whole family's dealings far as like my wife and how we deal with our our son and our dog and she and I have been on this quest to simplify our lives because if you're living your life knowing that you're going to meet your maker at any moment, it's nice to keep things simple. You don't want to clutter your thoughts with unnecessary things. And so it actually makes us feel like we're living out the vocation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Obviously they failed, but, but the Garden of Eden is really a minimalistic place every need was taken care of and other than that it was just them being present with god so it's like that monastic upbringing returned it's really like gotten rid of a lot of materialistic tendencies in our lives like what what was one thing that you guys did started doing to simplify like i i really like to be well dressed it's always been something that, you know, I like to look good and <laughs> like just the, just like reducing my clothing and wardrobe down to only what I need. That's been like a major step I've taken or like, I love to cook. I love to cook elaborate things like making a certain amount of meals every week, just about like substance rather than like beauty, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, what is the purpose of food? What is the purpose of clothing? What is the what's what's the purpose of all this stuff? We don't have cable. We don't we don't have any of this stuff. We have Spotify because music is experiential, helps us transcend and be with God. But really, like I, I got rid of social media for like six months. It was really awesome. Then I got back on and I feel crappy again. So. <laughs> yeah so just you know like little stuff like i had like i mean i feel ashamed mentioning this but i had like 
16 pairs of shoes, man. Like, what do you need 16 pairs of shoes for? <laughs> I know? don't know. I don't know. It's getting overwhelming. Mm-hmm. To be more simple is to be less frivolous and more frugal. And there's all sorts of benefits. Yeah, I love that. Well, the last kind of closing questions, I want to sort of be takeaways for people to apply this spirituality that you're living every day, you know, the momento mori um, spirituality, the Lenten spirituality. What is one concrete thing that you think people can do to keep a remembrance of their own mortality in front of them outside of buying one of your paintings? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hanging it prominently on their wall. <laughs> every day I think like there's certain devotions that are really helpful for me praying the sorrowful mysteries obviously that I mentioned earlier the scapular and Our Lady of Mount Carmel and her promises and uh, I would recommend reading the death of Ivan Illich and working on developing devotion to the mystic saints because they experience Christ in every person of the body of Christ in death and life. So when you see a dead person or when you're dying, hopefully you can recall that and feel like you can rely on somebody like Mother Teresa to help you from heaven. Uh, But I think, yeah, like cultivating a, a relationship with the mystics and really meditating on the sorrowful mysteries and trying to reduce clutter in your home. Just go through your house. And if you don't need something, don't hold on to it for sentimental reasons. Just, just get rid of it. doesn't matter. That's like my advice. That's good. You said one thing I really want to come back to. The idea of seeing the body of Christ um, or the person of Christ in every person what does that mean to you as as a mortician like and how does that change the way that you see your your job just a couple weeks ago i posted a picture by holbein the famous painter and it's christ in his tomb and that's not really an image that many painters have painted and when i saw it it immediately struck me because it's very clear that he was aware of what a corpse looks like. It's kind of this these gnarled, gangrenous hands and black skin. And, and in particular, like Christ's eyes were deeply haunting for me because when you see someone who's dead and their eyes are still open, they're hollow. The soul really does justice to, to a person's eyes. It's what animates you and makes you look alive. And so um, when you see a dead person and you see a picture of Christ who was dead for three days, it really hits home for me. Like, wow, this person has had the same fate as my savior. And they're going to continue to have the same fate if they lived within him. They're going to rise again. And so um, when I go into work and deal with There's this famous story about Mother Teresa, how this man went to volunteer for her. and As he was bathing this homeless man, the man turned into Christ. And Mother Teresa looked over to him and said, 
Hi, I see that you see him too. That's what I want to bring to the death care industry. I want people to see Christ in their loved one. I want to treat everybody that I take care of just like I would treat my Savior if I were if I were Joseph of Arimathea. How did he take care of Jesus Christ? That's how I want to take care of every person I encounter. That's why the mystics are so important to me. So. Wow. Yeah, I'm really touched by that um, that ministry, ministry to the dead as the body of Christ. When you're speaking to a lot of different artists, creatives in different industries, I think a universal experience of the artist is is a sense of being, what is my use, you know? Like a lot of times we all have felt at certain moments in our lives, a sense of like, I, I don't do numbers. I'm not going to be a business, you know, guru or something like I'm an artist. Where do I fit in? And it sounds like you had an experience of that in your life before you kind of found your outlet for creativity. What's the piece of advice that you, you would give to someone right now who is in a place in their lives where they don't quite know where they fit? or know where their creativity is going to be, be like their vocation, what piece of advice would you give that person? I would say, firstly, step back and look at your content. What am I conveying through my various branch of art? And can I use it to instruct society? And society, that sounds really broad and scary. You know, you know we don't need to all be painting the Sistine Chapel but or writing epic poetry but we can be we can be rabbis to those who are immediately around us and our art can be the method of teaching so if you're just making art for the sake of making art you're missing the point you don't need to use your art to go necessarily lead a, a conference or something. It doesn't need to be published, but you can directly influence those that most inner circle in your life. And that's, that's how the best teachers operate in my experience, in my life. All of my best teachers have operated by instructing those closest to them. And so you can use your artwork to do that. That would be my recommendation. That's awesome. That's great advice. I want to include, you know, links to some of the stuff that you've done in the show notes here. But if there's anything else that you want people to get, you know, in touch with you or find your art, where would they do that? You can add me on Facebook, Benjamin W. Grabner. I also have Instagram, Kodiak Grabner, and you can Google me. There will be a link that comes up for a pretty awesome blog site for people who deal with mental illness. And I was featured on that blog that has a lot of my work and you can write me a letter. I can send you a, a painting if you want or a drawing. So you can include my address if you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. I've been trying to like write letters to, to people lately, like old school, old school letters, like Benjamin Franklin style. All right, man. Well, thanks so much for getting on the show. And I hope to see people uh, getting in touch with you and, and uh, learning to adopt some of your monastic spirituality. Can't wait to catch up with you later and have more talks about these experiences. It's really like really beautiful. Thanks.
Thanks for interviewing me. All right, man. Well, I will talk to you later, brother. All right. God bless.